Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to 4 o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Thanks to Acting Up. This week, part one of an interview with Philippines-Australia activist May Kratzakis, GM News with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network, part two of the history of Haiti with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, an update on Western Sahara with Kate Lewis, results of a trial in Georgia, USA, of peace activists with Brian Terrell, but first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when just as we thought we could scrape former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle into the rubbish bin of history, he pops his detritus-covered head out of the bin to declare that the catastrophic bushfires are 100% down to the Greens, showing the influence that can be had by a handful of people on the cross benches, making Barnacle very cross, while as big Supremo scuttled their Morlash son was empathising in front of the cameras with fire victims showing his warm, dear baby Jesus, love thy neighbour self, some ingrate victim dared ask what he was doing about climate change, if there is such a thing, implying there might be some connection, forcing the state big supremo Gladys, bury your head in the Sandian, to intervene sensibly, today is not the day to discuss that, putting the ingrate into his place, leaving us to ponder just what day is the day, and the the current hayseed and cheap shit supremo Michael McColl maniac hit the jackpot developing barnacles insightful analysis blaming the disaster on inner city raving lunatics and not on non-inner city raving lunatics although we could never label pollution resources minister Matt Canavan of coal a raving lunatic as in the middle of all this Matt says what this country needs urgently desperately is more coal-fired power stations. With the government of market forces on the great level playing field of world's best practice footing the bill, if for some silly reason, like there's no profit in a dying industry, the great practitioners of market forces don't share Matt's enthusiasm. If we do not keep coal-fired power going, we will lose our ability to make many things that we should otherwise be, be doing, like catastrophic fire, catastrophic drought, catastrophic flooding, rising sea levels, flora and fauna extinction and other social necessities. Thus, scuttle them comforting the victim is akin to a mass murderer comforting a dying victim and declaring, today is not the day to discuss why I killed you. And on all this, the Minister for Privatised Health, Greg Hunt the Prophets, a former Minister for Fossil Pollution, said he was passionate about the government's energy and climate change policy. My word, he's easily pleased, although an elaboration on, say, what the policy is, wouldn't have gone astray. Unless doing nothing in a canter is a policy, and supporting that policy following those disgraceful scenes of... <laughs> 
violent protesters attacking the sorry, are forces of law and order, protesters opposed to the government non-policy and taking it out on the great resource corporations whose magnificent and selfless crusade is to lift the world's poor out of poverty, scuttled them and had enough of these lawless criminals. Drawing on past Big Supremo's experience with evil trade unions to solve the problem. Ban secondary boycotts. Ban evil criminals preventing the great corporates going about their lawful business lawful business versus unlawful protest. Because as we discovered in an exclusive interview with our regular police spokesperson, Senior Sergeant Bernie O'Pig, these long-haired commie wooden work in an iron lot's crime is like, you know, like, like, you know, like, protest. Indulgent and selfish practice scuttle them spoke for all law-abiding citizens in describing the long-haired commie lot. And in discussing the wording of my proposed legislation with the fossil and resource industry, it is the government's responsibility to protect, as they dictated the wording to me, it became apparent just how appalled these great corporate people are at the very thought that anyone's practice could be indulgent and selfish. And who said the government's responsibility is to protect the great mining corporations, scuttle them? Oh, well, they did. Not that they needed to. They, the government governs for all the people. That means facilitating jobs, 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 and growth, growth, growth. And scuttle them said the great corporations had bemoaned the fact, the sad fact, that indulgent and selfish practice is not restricted to true blue Aussie. They told me there are selfish and indulgent people around the world who protest over unfortunate but unforeseeable matters like tailing dams bursting and causing a, a little bit of death and damage or, or complain when their homes or way of life must be sacrificed for the common good of jobs, jobs, jobs and growth, growth, growth whose sole purpose is to lift these indulgent and selfish people out of poverty. Uh, but your legislation won't ban protest altogether, Scuttle, then, will it? Certainly not. We respect and uphold the right to protest as long as it has no effect whatever. Oh, that's very fair, Scuttle, then. Very fair, and don't forget there is really responsible protests like when the great corporations protested against the socialist resources super-duper profits tax and crippling carbon tax, which would have destroyed the true blue Aussie economy. Yes, yeah, great to see the government getting the balance right. And this report into the Socialist Party snatching defeat from the jaws of victory blames, among other things, divisive language, dividing the country with dangerous language like suggesting maybe the filthy rich should not receive quite so many free public handouts, whereas the caring business class sheepshit and hayseed parties used unifying language like we will increase free public handouts for the filthy rich and socialist penny left wing said they must win the people on the economy. A socialist economy, Penny. We must win the people on the economy. And Supremo, and would-be big Supremo, Anthony all being oozy, iterated his firm socialist belief that the road to socialism lies in making capitalism lot stronger, which every government has been doing since government began, or white invader government, that is, began in Trublawazi. And so the real problem lies in policies, electoral dynamite. And the report suggests there was a bit of a problem with then Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten ambition. 
like no one liked him. Interesting, who would have imagined that left-wing warrior Anthony Albinguzi would in record time make little Billy look like a revolutionary? Rural communities across the state are about to sink into dark dystopia following the pejorative Dan Socialists telling us the destruction of native forests would be phased out over a mere 11 years, allowing presumably, given it now sees the destruction of native forests of old growth forests a bit of a problem, only 11 more years of destruction. If you realise it's a problem, then why not just, oh well, with the chainsaw industry screaming, 11 years is nearly enough time to readjust, forcing as usual to defend its workers' jobs and telling us it will take much longer to develop plantation timber. Wonder what they've been doing given the closure of the public assets has been on the cards for a while. Anyway, it's all disaster, but the government will hand them 120 mil of our money and 11 years of our old growth forests to ease the pain. When just maybe the logging chainsaw mob who've been making millions out of public assets for eons should foot some of the bill to retrain and transition workers. Now, it, now it's obviously a job for the public purse, and the industry said the one 20 million isn't nearly enough and they're going to need lots more and the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Deputy Federal Leader Bridget McCosey up to the chainsaws said logging old growth forests was, direct quote, clean, green, sustainable, well-managed resource, which helps explain why that lot don't believe in climate change and the chainsaw industry agreed it is well-managed. We manage to chop it down, it said proudly. Apropos of nothing, one of the supermarket duopoly, Kills Value, is running this extraordinarily generous offer for what it tells us are quality European wine glasses. And when we analyse it, we have to marvel at how they can afford it. For the punters get one credit toward a glass for every $20 they spend, and they only need up to 35 credit points to staff up the offer, meaning Kills Value's generosity runs to roughly $700 a glass, or, or a mere 4500 for the set. As I said, we have to marvel at how good old Kills Value can afford to give them away, but for what it's worth, pun only slightly intended, the punters would be advised to just buy the bloody glass and, and save thousands. Finally, this smash the evil unions and evil union members bill, whose fortunes hang on one notion's that appalling Hoonsun and her mob, and Jackie Lumpen, who says the entire true blue Aussie workforce must suffer unless one evil union official resigns, showing her in-depth comprehension, but do a deal and sell them out, and after all, she is an ex-train killer. So with that lot, the evil unions and evil union membership are about to get their justice desserts for making life difficult for good caring employers who so care about them and to show how evil the evil unions are they suggested ludicrously that good caring employers who inadvertently underpay their workers by say a few million dollars are not closed down and put out of business as the smash the evil unions bill will do to evil unions as if there's some connection or logic to that argument and thankfully the Nixon a 
Mahoney Senator Rex Evil Union's Pat, Pat Prick and his mate have agreed to smash the unions but with a few smash the union amendments and Rex Evil Union said he had discussed the amendments with evil unions. Bet he hasn't talked to the construction unions but he must have been, he must have been talking to the shopping the workers union because like, like the, the xenophony mob, they're all reason. Good afternoon. And if you'd like to hear more of Mr Kevin Healy, the place is 3CR, the time is 9 o'clock, tomorrow morning for City Limits. Human rights activist May Katsakis was born in the Philippines but has lived over half her life in Australia. She's involved in many groups including Gabriella, the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association and the International Popular People's Movement which recently met in Hong Kong. When May came into the studio last week, I asked her first which part of the Philippines she called home as a child. I was born in the southernmost part of Luzon, which is the main island of the Philippines. So it's called Bicol region, and I grew up there. But when I was already in the university, I had to go to the city, Manila, and that's where I finished my schooling. Were your parents political? No. My parents were uh, farmers. They lived mostly on land, any produce from the land and sea. Lots of siblings? Yes. Why did you go to university? What did you hope to do? Would it have been unusual for the daughter of a farmer to go to... In the Philippines, uh, education seemed to be so important. Parents believed that Children will have more chances of employment if they are educated, especially if they finish universities. There are lots of unemployment, unemployment in the Philippines, so competition to find work is very much, very much stiff. So unless a person has diploma or degree, it's quite difficult to find a good employment. What did you hope to do? You didn't want to stay... Working on the land, obviously. Working on the land is not much, you know, it's not much uh, sort of future because it's not like when you speak of farmers in the Philippines, there are those who don't own land. Or if they do, only little, small parcel of land because those who own land, they don't farm. They are the landlords and they just get peasant or workers to farm their land. So farmers uh, normally don't own that much land. At my time, the food wasn't scarce yet. So we can afford to eat three times a day. We don't buy fish. We don't buy vegetable or fruit. They, sometimes they just fall from the tree when I was young. Nowadays, though, it's very different. So people, children, their always the dream is to finish schooling. To go to Manila, that's a long way from home, is it? Yes, it is the main city in the Philippines, the capital city. What was it like leaving home to go to the big city? It was a big change uh, at first, but, but uh, when we were still in the countryside, in the province, we, we have relatives in Manila, so we visit the city, not maybe often, but before I went to the city to study, I have been to the city several times. But, of course, it's different because everything in the city you have to buy. There are no freebies. You cannot just go climb a tree and get a fruit 
or walk along, you know, some places in the countryside and you can get free vegetables, like those wild ferns and all that, you know. So it's very different in the city. Of course, it's not as fresh and peaceful as in the countryside. Looking back on those years of your earlier childhood, what did you know about Marcos and the dictatorship? I was uh, already in the secondary when when Marcos was first elected. I was in the secondary school. I was already involved while I was in the secondary school. I, I was a um, school official, and uh, we were already very much sort of aware about Marcos. But I wasn't, though, an activist when I was still young. Actually, when Marcos visited our school, I was taking a trades trades course then. I was taking food trades. And uh, we uh, cooked for the whole entourage. So we did the catering at the school. The school, uh, the school students did the catering, and I was assigned to serve Marcos and his wife, Imelda. I was the one that served them food. And we took that opportunity to ask for some funding for the school while I was serving. Because we did not have any sort of appointment, we took the opportunity. When I served them, I gave the letter. We were asking for some funding so we can build a science building. And we got the funding. Yeah, but the building was never built because some of those in charge has corrupted the money, put the money in their own pocket. That's when I started becoming an activist. And was that the time when Marcos hadn't been in power very long and he he was actually making out that he was going to help the people? Yes, he was popular then. Maybe he started already his corruption, but it wasn't known to the people yet. He declared martial law in 1972, and I was already in the university at the time. So when he went to our school, when I was in the secondary, that was his first term of, uh, of presidency. What was it like at university? What were you studying? I took uh, chemical engineering. I passed a sort of scholarship on science, so I had to take a science course. I wanted to take law, but my father said that the time when, because I took a technical course first in, uh, you know, two-year technical course, and I took electronics. When I wanted to take law, that was already uh, martial law. And my father said, you won't be able to use your, you know, degree. Because under martial law, lawyers, you know, it's the law of the military. And uh, he was right. So I took uh, chemical engineering. What was the activism like in the university against Marcos? Oh, it was it was very active. I mean, um, universities, most of the universities were very, students were very active. In between classes, we have some, like, education session. There are some people explaining about what is happening in the Philippines. That was the time that activism was really at high, you know, 1970s. That's why Marcos uh, declared martial law because the students were very, you know, very active then. Was there any repression against the students for being active? Oh, yes. The repression is that at the time, before martial law, I uh, actually experienced 
I was still in the in the province. I was still in the secondary. I was one of the representatives to attend a sort of national assembly. It was the national assembly of the students, and I was representing our school. But that national assembly was actually an assembly of progressive students. We di- we were not told that it was like that. But when we arrived there, it was the assembly of Student Alliance for National Democracy, or it was called Stand. And we went to pick it in front of the U.S. Embassy. We were picketing, and that's when I first witnessed how the brutality of the police. I, um, I actually witnessed one of the students already lying down because he, he fell and he was being beaten by the police. And I was so frightened that I didn't even realize that one of the heels of my sandals was broken. And I was walking, actually, unevenly. I didn't even realize because I was so frightened. I mean, to witness like that from a countryside, you know, and I was from a countryside, and I witnessed such brutality, you know, it was frightening. So it was, there was already repression. But then um, it wasn't the same as when the martial law was declared. Where were you when martial law was declared? Uh, I was in Manila at school, and then suddenly the, all the public transport, they stopped. We actually walked. I actually walked from school to where I lived. That was, it took me one and a half hours. Yes, because everything seemed to just stop. Did you continue on your activism, even though, like when you were that, talking about university, you were frightened? How long did it take you to get over that fear that you continued to be an activist? Well, I continue until after the martial law. After the martial law, the communications between the activists were cut. A lot of um, contacts were missing, and and uh, our group, the group that I was with, uh, our main contact, we didn't see him anymore. Because? Well, we learned that he was killed. Then I was cut off. So I was cut off, and at that time, uh, when I was cut off, that was about 1974, 73, 74. And then I had a, a job. I had a full-time job. I was working in an office of a contractor, contracting firm. And then I got married and have children. So, But I was still continuing my education because my uh, university studies was actually cut off when the martial law was uh, declared. And then, so I continue my studies. I already have a son, a child then. So it was quite difficult. I didn't try to look for contacts in the activism. I lost my contact. Uh, nobody sort of tried to contact me, and I didn't know who to contact as well, because, you know, during martial law, whoever is your contact, that's it. I had a different job, so... There was a lot of fear mm-hmm. around? Because I stopped being, you know, I, I was concentrated on my work, my family. So I don't actually sort of feel the fear that much. But do you feel that people around you were fearful? That was only right after Marcella was declared. But after that, the activism continued, you know. Yeah. I mean, people were not scared anymore. What was the lead-up to Marcos being kicked out of the Philippines. In 1986, there was an election 
the the opposite of Marcos is was a, a, a lady, uh, the wife of former Senator Aquino. She uh, she had no experience in politics, but the people then were so tired of the 20 years of rule of dictatorship of Marcos. So Aquino won, but then Marcos cheated, and the people knew very well. So there was protest, you know, and um, even the Catholic Church and Filipinos, uh, majority of Filipinos are Catholic until now. So the Archbishop of the church called for the people to go to to the streets. And at the time, the movement, left movement or the activists, the movement in the Philippines were already very ripe because of the martial law. So that's what, uh, you know, people went to the street. We call it People Power 1986, February 1986. And that's what, when Marcos was kicked off. What role did the death of Aquino's husband play in this? Aquino was in prison under Marcos, Benigno Aquino, but then he got sick. So the family requested that Aquino, you know, be transferred or give medication, so they went to the U.S. But then Aquino decided to come home to the Philippines, but then at the tarmac in the airport, he was uh, assassinated. That Did that make the the movement much stronger to get rid of Marcos because they believed that he'd been responsible for his death? Yes, and that any opposition, you know. So Marcos aimed, at that time, Marcos was aiming for a perpetual leadership. He was actually aiming that the Philippines become like a parliamentary, then there will be like a royal family or king, and so that he can just sort of, there is a, what do you call that? A transfer of power without election. So he was aiming for something like that. Yeah, he's a dictator. So he can just, just like uh, Duterte now, they can just write a rule, presidential decree or order, you know, memorandum order. That's it. And that is already (laughs) the law of the land. Can you talk a bit more about the People's Popular Movement when the people came out in the streets from all different parts of... Yeah, so um, because the movement started as early as 1960s, and it started at school, but then students graduated, and even though they haven't graduated, they started to organize people masses, not only students. So uh, organizing was done in different sectors, different areas, even on the streets. So organizing are done at school level, on the streets, workers, uh, union was very uh, strong. For peasants, people were going to the countryside to organize the peasants because 70% of the population of the Philippines are farmers or peasants. They live on the land or they depend on their living from the land or, or water. So the organizing was done all around the Philippines and all sectors. It grew. So when there is a call of uh, like protest or strike, then it's always very successful, even under martial law, even with the threat of being arrested without any warrant or being killed or harassed. People were not deterred. Just talk about three sections of society over those years. The Catholic Church, how important was that? 
The Catholic Church played a very important role because devoted Catholics uh, in the Philippines, uh, they look into like the priest or the church leaders, they look into that as very important people, as Messiah, or not Messiah, but as a messenger of God. So, if they speak of something, many people believe. They have faith, and uh, because there are plenty of Christians or Catholic people who are very devoted, so whatever, uh, especially if the leader of the church, uh, in, in the case of the Philippines, it will be the, uh, not Archbishop, well, Archbishop is very important as well, um, I forgot the name of uh, the leader of the Catholic church in one country. Whatever he or she or we speak or he say, then people tend to follow. The, the Archbishop was very important, though, wasn't he, in the yes. People's Movement? the Archbishop of Manila at the time. Ah, the Cardinal, Cardinal Sin, yeah, who called for the people to go to the streets and protest against Marcos. What about the Communist Party? The Communist Party was uh, the biggest sort of have that role in deposing uh, Marcos because uh, the Communist Party, well, I was told that they maintain the activism, they maintain the, you know, the uh, movement in the Philippines. And uh, the leadership of the Communist Party sort of uh, solidifies or binds all the activists in the Philippines, especially under Marcos. People, especially in the countryside, they trust the party very much, even now. And in such a way that when I, I went to, to my village, People, they were talking that when there were the Revolutionary Army, they call the Revolutionary Army New People's Army. They know if there are New People's Army in their village because there is peace and there is no crime. The military replaced the New People's Army because uh, a lot of places in the countryside are militarized now. They know if the military comes because there are lots of crime. That's how, you know, in the countryside. In the city, you don't feel that much because the city, actually, they don't, I mean, they are so much concerned of so many things. But in the countryside, the people will say that. How did your parents fare up until the end of Marcos? Were they harassed at all in their particular area? They were not harassed, and uh, our village is very close to town. The uh, New People's Army or the Revolutionary Army I don't know if they ever go down that close to town. So the military is not so much as well in that area. At, at the time, I, I, I actually don't know whether there were New People's Army in the area. They said that there were. But later, I was already in the university that they had talk of there were students that were killed in our, you know, in our village. There, there was no activism in the village at the time. You've been listening to... Mike Kotsakis, activist from the Philippines, now living in Australia. And next week we'll hear part two of a rather long interview with May. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. And it's welcome again to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And 
Bob, we've talked a lot this year about Roundup and the court cases. What's the latest state of these court cases, particularly in the US? It appears to be mainly in the US that people are suing Monsanto and Bayer because of the US court system and people are able to successfully litigate for the harm that's been done to them. There are a number of different substances that are currently very big time in the Australian courts. So one of them is Roundup herbicide, but another interesting one is Johnson & Johnson's baby powder, which is probably going to be the biggest payout for a long, long time, where Johnson's um, talcum powder has been contaminated with asbestos for a very long time because they exist together in nature. And Johnson & Johnson, of course, didn't tell its customers that its product was contaminated and that it could cause them mesothelioma. The number of uh, people claiming that their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma has been caused by exposure to Roundup has doubled in the last three months. And it's now up around 43,000 which is a very considerable number of people to uh, want to go before the courts. And this follows, of course, three successful court hearings in which juries awarded around $80 million each to four plaintiffs in California. That's ongoing. It's going to take some years to play out. But at the moment, it looks like particularly Bayer Crop Science is going to take a very big hit on its budget and on its existence, in fact, as a result of people connecting the dots between Roundup herbicide exposure and uh, their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in particular. But of course, it's responsible for a large number of other health issues as well, which are clearly confirmed at at this point. Do they have class actions in the US like they do here rather than 43,000 individual cases? They can have class actions and the judge in California who was hearing the four cases that have already been confirmed in favour of the plaintiffs has actually sent 900 other cases to mediation. A court-appointed mediator is currently discussing people uh, with non-Hodgkins and with the company how it could be settled without going to the court because the court doesn't want to be hearing round-up cases for the next 20 years and the other cases would be going to various courts around the USA. People in probably all the states of the USA have a case. I guess they'll be dealt with uh, in various ways in various different jurisdictions. Well with these cases now concluded and all these ones to follow What's the situation with Roundup in the US? Is it still legally sold? It is, although California uh, passed a law last year that uh, requires the label of Roundup now to carry a warning that it is carcinogenic. And that was challenged by the company and the federal government tried to say to California you can't require such a label. However, the state is for the moment standing up to them. The product there does carry that additional warning, which should be a wake-up call to all users of the product, whether they're uh, in their back garden or on farms, that um, the health and safety issues around glyphosate, which is the ingredient in Roundup, are now very open, and uh, we've even seen two cases come into court here in Australia. There's no action on them at the moment, but there is a farmer in New South Wales that is suing and a commercial gardener here in Victoria. 
it is going on around the world and other countries are thinking about their position as well in relation to both the broad acre farm use of Roundup herbicide and um, its use in home gardens and by other users like local councils and so on. Just before we get on to the other countries, what other products are there that have glyphosate as the active ingredient? Oh, well, there are a whole range of them. If you look on your supermarket shelf in the gardening section, you'll see that they're um, marketed under a number of brand names. I mean, Roundup is just one of several brand names for the active ingredient glyphosate. Can I just... 500 formulations of Roundup registered in Australia, so you wouldn't know what else is in the product beside the glyphosate. That can include some very nasty toxic chemicals as well. It's a chemical mixture. It should be treated with extreme caution. But meanwhile, our Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority are saying that they won't review its safety, that they won't revise their opinion about it, that provided you follow the label, it's fine to use. The problem is that the label is as shonky as one thing. It gives no proper warnings. It doesn't give any very exact times about how soon you can allow your children and animals to go into an area that's sprayed. And indeed, there is a conversation going on with the regulator at the moment about people being allowed back into an area even while the Roundup herbicide is still wet on the ground and on the plants, whereas until now they've been saying that at least you should wait it until it dries. There's a long story ahead on um, exposure not only to this chemical but to many others as well, uh, some of which are even more toxic. Why then, with all these other products, is Roundup being targeted? Well, it's because of a report in 2015 that really opened Pandora's box. An expert committee on cancers of the United Nations changed the, the rating of um, glyphosate from a possible human carcinogen to a probable human carcinogen on the basis of all the peer-reviewed evidence. The problem is that the evidence on which the regulators base their judgments about the safety of this toxin is, in many cases, at least 30 years old. It was given a tick in the 1990s to say, yeah, Roundup safe to use, and the regulators are not willing yet to review that position. Meanwhile, we've got very many other sectors of society, for instance, the insurance industry, saying this is a chemical that almost certainly causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. We're going to be up for a lot of money big time if these judgments continue. So investors in Bayer, the insurance industry, and the industry that licenses glyphosate for inclusion in their products, local councils who use it, and a number of others are all getting very restless indeed. We now see that some countries are banning its use as well, so it's a very fluid situation, but I think we can say that certainly by 2023 it will be phased out totally in Europe, and in other jurisdictions it's already having the being chopped as well. So uh, its time has come, and we see already that people with a bit of vision like the West Australian Agriculture Minister Alain McTiernan came out the week before last just warning farmers that they may not have Roundup available for general spraying on their crops 
before very long because of its safety issues, but also, of course, because of trade. And now a number of our trading partners are saying uh, we're not willing to accept your grains and oil seeds if they have any residue of uh, these herbicides in them at all. Zero tolerance. We're on the cusp of agriculture and agribusiness having to develop new ways to uh, look, at, look after the management of weeds and indeed there are new technologies and new much safer chemicals particularly some natural ones out of, made out of pine oil for instance will start coming on the market to replace Roundup uh, very soon I hope. Which other countries have taken action and what sort of action? Thailand is the latest. Um, Vietnam several months ago announced a ban and now Thailand is joining it. In fact, Asia is becoming really the cutting edge for chemical regulation worldwide. They are being very, very stringent indeed. And along with the Roundup ban in those two countries, they've also um, outlawed Paraquat, which is another weed killer, very toxic one, and Chlorpyrifos, which is an insecticide. So these are banned as well. Meanwhile, our Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority continues to allow approval of all three of those chemicals for agricultural use, though they have uh, limitations on their use uh, for domestic purposes. Europe banned Paraquat as long ago as 2007, and we should have seen the writing on the wall then, but our regulators appear to take no notice. Meanwhile, on the Roundup herbicide, Countries like Austria, the Czech Republic and France already got tough limits or complete bans on all glyphosate-based herbicides. So in France, for instance, uh, you can't now go into a supermarket, into a nursery as you can here, and simply take a bottle of uh, glyphosate off the shelf. It's not available in supermarkets or nurseries uh, throughout France. And that's the way of the future. It won't be available for use in gardens. It won't be available for use on places like golf courses, which use a huge amount of toxic chemicals. Uh, and local councils will have to rethink their position as well. You're talking about it affecting humans. Well, what about the, the total ecology of the land? Animals, insects, birds, bees, they must all be affected. Well, yes, um it's now clear from new research that bees, for instance, suffer short-term memory loss uh, when they're exposed to glyphosate, can't find their hives and lose their, their direction-finding ability to find their way around in the environment. Uh, and this, of course, is very disruptive for the health and welfare, not only of the individual bees, but, of course, the hive as well. And so we've had this problem for a number of years for reasons that are various and some of which are identified, others not, of colony collapse disease in Europe and North America in particular, uh, where bees simply don't come back to the hive and disappear in the environment. We're absolutely dependent on bees and other insects to pollinate our crop plants. And uh, without those pollinators, of course, we can expect that... Uh, there will be a collapse in uh, food production. For instance, almond orchards, and there are now scads of almond orchards being planted along the Murray-Darling, where they're also short of water. 
it's a huge business for beekeepers to bring their beehives in there annually to uh, pollinate those almond trees because without that pollination there simply won't be any almonds and it's the same uh, in the huge orchards in North America. There are very serious problems now with uh, the deployment of these pollinating insects with their health and that's the result of we now know of exposure to things like um, Roundup herbicides. What about future farms and food security, Bob? What's the issue there? This is um, a bizarre fantasy that um, Bridget McKenzie, the Agriculture Minister, has dreamed up and has given a, a reference to the Agriculture Committee of the House of Reps to inquire into creating industrial agribusiness in Australia that will produce um, $100 billion of annual turnover by 2030. The action of Australian agriculture is about $50 billion now, and even that is in trouble as a result of drought, bushfire, and generally from global climate change. And yet this committee of the parliament is being told, oh, yes, we're going to um, create this huge bonanza for Australia. Meanwhile, of course, there's no talk about the need for a transition to regenerative or organic farming systems, food and seed sovereignty, the, the ownership and control of the global seed supply, for example, has now largely fallen into the hands of just five companies. No real talk about environmental impacts, the shortage of water and soil in Australia. There's just a whole raft of of issues around what kind of society do we want and what kind of food future does Australia have uh, which is under this severe aberration of thinking oh the main thing is that we get to a hundred billion dollars by 2030 so it's an opportunity for the community to have a say anybody wants to find out what's going on they should just um, google a hundred billion dollars agriculture by 2030 and that will turn up the website on the government uh, website that's talking about this. Meanwhile they've published a number of the submissions that have already been lodged and we see that for instance CropLife which is the global network of influence of the agrochemical companies and the GM seed companies uh, that's saying basically business as usual but more so genetically manipulated crops more chemicals more farm machinery just get on with doing the same now the same in conditions of global climate change going to lead to collapse not the sort of growth that they envisage and of course it's very partisan in its um, in its objectives to try to justify that we should continue for instance spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on researching and developing the old systems of farming and putting nothing into the new regenerative and organic systems that are needed to ensure that Australians can be fed into the future because we shouldn't take our food security for granted. Of course the government is in the business of creating new trade agreements with a variety of countries around the world, including a group within Southeast Asia and the European Union, and they imagine that uh, Australia is going to be able to feed itself in the future by continuing to export bulk commodities 
like wheat, barley, sugar and so on, without value adding at all in Australia, send these bulk commodities overseas and then buy back the food that we need to support us as Australians. It's a bit like this wicked foolishness that's going on at the moment with the gas where we're the biggest gas exporter in the world and to supply domestic consumers gas is imported into Australia for what reason just defies belief and of course it's become tremendously expensive as well as a result of the very strong demand from overseas so it's the same mine Australia send it overseas without value adding that's what they're trying to do to agriculture as well we just need a bit of futuristic thinking about a different way of doing things of nurturing and looking after the Australian continent and not bleeding the Murray-Darling and other river systems dry uh, and then exporting the product that created into other markets overseas we need to be thinking in an environmentally friendly and visionary way about how do we nurture Australia so that future generations of Australian citizens can be fed, housed and clothed without wrecking the environment, can still live a very satisfactory and good life here. You wonder how much the, the federal government is taking climate change into its thinking when it says, oh, we're going to have $100 billion of agriculture by 2030. It's not taking it into account at all, and indeed this morning Michael McCormick, in the face of these unprecedented bushfires at this time of the year in New South Wales and Queensland, Michael McCormick, the Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the National Party, is saying that the Greens are loony for claiming that climate change is somehow uh, tied up in the fact that uh, we're having these huge conflagrations at this most unusual time of the year. You know, we're always bushfire prone, but really what's happening at the moment is quite unprecedented. And we've got troglodytes like Michael McCormick saying that the Greens, who are calling out the real situation, are a bunch of loonies for saying so. There's something very, very terribly wrong with the leadership of government and the community generally in Australia if... Um, We'll just focus on, oh, yeah, we're going to have this great bonanza of $100 billion each year by 2030 of agricultural production when um, we've got these climate-related catastrophes confronting us and being ignored by our so-called political leaders. If, it would be comic. It would be amusing if it wasn't so serious, but these... Um, clowns who have somehow got themselves elected to be the leaders of Australia have got their blinkers on and their earmuffs on and don't, it appears, uh, to be able to um, see what's really going on. These fires should be a wake-up call, but it appears that they're not. It seems to me that there's a few people with blinkers on when they talk about CRISPR as the, the be-all-and-one-all thing too. Well, yes, the new genetic manipulation techniques that are coming on the scene are going to be voted on this Wednesday, in fact, and uh, we're relying on the Labor Party to disallow the government's plan to deregulate a whole raft of new, untried, untested, unassessed genetic manipulation techniques as well. It's just unbelievable that um, 
our GM regulatory system and the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, which have done a reasonably decent job over the last 20 years of regulating all new genetic manipulation techniques and the animals, the plants and the microorganisms that are produced and which agribusiness wants to release to our, to our environment. The government is now, has now got these regulations which are up for discussion again on Wednesday in the Senate and we're asking the Labor Party to do the right thing to disallow these regulations so that we continue to ensure that our Office of Gene Technology Regulator takes an expert look at any new GM animal or plant that might come into our environment or into our food supply, into places that it can affect our public health. New technologies that were only invented in 2012 got a very limited history of use, let alone safe use. We really don't know the off-target impacts and consequences, which are very unpredictable. You make these new organisms, if they're going to be released willy-nilly without any public or notice to the regulator, then when they fly under the radar into our environment, into our food supply, we can expect some pretty nasty results. This is why we have also got a, a cyber action going, which I'd encourage uh, your listeners to uh, go and do, to speak to their local MP uh, using the petition form and to say disallow these new regulations which would stop the assessment and licensing of the new GM techniques, including CRISPR and a number of others as well. So if people want to Google GMO, question mark, soon you won't know, they'll find the petition page, they'll be able to have a word not only with their own Member of Parliament but also the Senators uh, from Victoria and they need to hear from everyone and anyone as quickly as possible because tomorrow, Wednesday, it will be in the Senate and we're looking for disallowance there. We're hoping that the crossbench and the Labor Party will join with the Greens who are moving the disallowance motion and we'll get that up and disallow the government's plan, the troglodyte plan, uh, to simply stop regulating a lot of new uh, genetic manipulation techniques and the animals, plants and microbes that those techniques will be used to create. This deregulatory mantra, which is uh, what our leadership keep going on with, they're not doing their job. Governments have a job to regulate industry, to regulate corporations. We've seen time after time failure when deregulation comes in, as it did say with aged care in 1997, John Howard deregulated the aged care. Now we have a Royal Commission. In the 1990s, Keating deregulated the banks. We've just had the Banking Royal Commission that shows that banks have ripped off the public. Deregulation, the neoliberal mantra of uh, small government, getting government out of the way and letting the market, market take charge is simply a recipe for creating a disaster waiting to happen and then letting future generations have to come along and pick up the pieces. There are just countless examples of it. We can't let this happen again, either with the chemicals, in the case of Roundup, we have to get them out of our food production systems along with a 
large number of uh, other chemicals. Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority has got um, over 11,000 agricultural chemicals and veterinary medicines on its books. A lot of them were registered up to 50 years ago when the evidence was very, very poor um, about their safety. They are not being reviewed. The review process was cancelled by the National Party again. Barnaby Joyce cancelled the review process. We just need government for once to do its job of regulating and regulating properly. We've got good regulations in place on genetic manipulation techniques and their products and we don't need deregulation. So please, please go on the cyber action, GMO, question mark, soon you won't know, have a word with your politician and we can see if tomorrow, uh, with a bit of luck, uh, we'll get those senators to do the right thing for once in their life and disallow the government's deregulatory agenda. Lots for us all to do. That was Bob Muntz from the Gene Ethics Network and it's coming up to five minutes to five o'clock. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Today, the second in a three-part series looking at the early history of Haiti, which occupies the western third of the island of Hispaniola in the Caribbean. Sasha Gillies-Lakakis from the Latin American Update Program on 3CR continues the story. By 1791, French Saint-Domingue was falling apart at the seams. Racial and class tensions, which had fostered hatred and violence for so long, now began to work against the French rather than for them. As we discovered in our last program, a number of revolts shook Saint-Domingue in this year, though most historians can agree that the main revolt occurred at Bois-Cayman in the north of the country. Led by Duty Bookman, a voodoo priest who had amassed a following of several thousand, he organised a religious ceremony which was used to rally the Haitian slaves to the war effort against the French. Open revolts spread rapidly, and in less than ten days the entirety of northern Haiti had been taken from the French. French men and women were killed by the Haitian rebels as revenge for the centuries of violence and torture that their people had been forced to endure. Though the planters were well armed and could rely on powerful economic and military allies, the number of slaves in revolt had swelled to well over 100,000 in just a few weeks. Close to 200 sugar plantations were destroyed, and the next year, in 1792, the rebels controlled over one-third of the island. At this stage, many in the Haitian Revolution's elite were continuing to demand that the French revolutionary government in Paris recognise the civil and political rights of people of colour. And to the shock and ire of the US, Britain and other European countries, France consented. It was at this point that both Britain and Haiti's neighbour at the time, Spain, decided to stake their claim on the disintegrating French colony. At first, Britain and Spain actually aided the rebels, only because they were warring with France. It must be emphasised that this alliance between the revolting slaves and these two European powers was very much pragmatic. 
as Britain even attempted to conquer Haiti and restore slavery once the French had been fully defeated. This effort thankfully met with total disaster. Seeing the writing on the wall, the French government in Paris agreed to abolish slavery in 1793, hoping to retain Saint-Domingue as a colony rather than grant it independence or cede it to Britain or Spain. By 1798, the war against Haiti's external enemies had, for now, subsided. During the revolution, one man had undoubtedly become its leader, and that was Toussaint Louverture. Louverture enshrined many French revolutionary principles, and some even more radical, such as those relating to racial equality, in the constitution of the island. Haiti's founding father, as he is often called, was most notable for his constant drive to strengthen and swell Haiti's military, as he feared a brutal French counterattack to regain control of the wayward colony. It was during this period, then, that Haiti's military elite began to develop, a factor that would have serious ramifications in the centuries to come. Toussaint Louverture was correct in his predictions, and just a few years later, in 1802, Napoleon's forces invaded the island. After Leverture and his close ally Henry Christophe refused to hand over the island to the French, Napoleon's forces landed and began a brutal occupation. The Haitians, however, did not go down without a fight. Indeed, across the island there was fierce resistance at every corner, and in the mountainous interior the French were very nearly defeated by Haitians occupying a British-constructed fortress. However, Louverture was betrayed by Henry Christophe, who took much of the military with him and sided with the French. Louverture was jailed in France and died just a year later in 1803 in the Jura Mountains. Napoleonic rule of Saint-Domingue only lasted for a few months. The Haitians, after discovering that the French planned to reinstate slavery, once again rose up, particularly the cane cutters who were incensed at the prospect of returning to those days of horror. At this stage, the French had again been decimated by a cocktail of tropical diseases, and many of Napoleon's troops in Haiti were not in fact French, but rather they were Polish. They had foolishly believed that by helping the French emperor, they would be granted an independent Polish state. The Poles, irrespective of their training and equipment, fell easily to the guerrilla tactics of the Haitian insurgents. Three Haitian generals, Dessalines, Pétion and Christophe, switched sides yet again and now assumed control of the revolt against France. Napoleon had entrusted leadership of his colonial operation to Vicomte de Rochambeau, renowned for his brutality. In fact, in one incident, he hanged 500 black resistance fighters and publicly displayed them to taunt the Haitian revolutionaries. Dessalines, renowned for his fiery personality, killed an equal number of white planters and displayed them on the periphery of French-controlled territory. By late 1803, French efforts were very quickly unravelling. Napoleon had withdrawn most French troops to bolster the wars now taking place in Europe, and British vessels from Jamaica had decimated Caribbean supply routes that the French relied upon. Rochambeau eventually conceded defeat, fleeing aboard a British vessel like many of his compatriots. Many more still fled to the Spanish colony of Cuba. Dessalines maintained the revolt until the last French-held towns were captured, and in 1804 he officially declared the creation of the Republic of Haiti, the first free black republic in the world. This actually makes Haiti also the first independent republic in Latin America. January 1st, 1804, in Haiti, was an extremely difficult period, to say the least. Haiti's economic lifeline, the plantations imposed by the French, had been almost completely destroyed, 
Much of the country's infrastructure lay in ruins, and the entire international community was hostile to the new government. The US, Britain, Spain and France were all eager to see Haiti destroyed, for daring to challenge not only slavery, but the fabrication that the white man was somehow superior to those of colour. Dessalines knew he had to take drastic measures to restore Haiti's economy to some semblance of order. He reinstated the plantation system and maintained the fermage system implemented by Toussaint Louverture prior to his capture. Under this system, all plantations were owned by the state, and while workers were obliged to stay on the land and live in accommodation provided at the plantations, they were able to share 25% of the total profit from their endeavour. While far from perfect, this was quite a radical experiment for the time. Dessalines additionally presided over the brutal murder of French colonists that remained behind after 1804. In fact, most suffered some form of persecution, except for doctors, priests and other professionals that had received an education many Haitians had not. Dessalines really was undone by Haiti's circumstances. He believed that the island was surrounded by enemies ready to conquer the island. And as we've discussed, he wasn't entirely wrong. However, he took these concerns a step further with a preemptive invasion of Santo Domingo, the Spanish colony that shared the island with Haiti. They very, clear, they very nearly conquered the entire colony, but were, but were unable to take the capital, forcing the demoralised army to return to impoverished Haiti. By 1806, Dessalines had made many enemies in Haiti itself, notably those from the south of the island. It must be noted here that Haiti's regional differences are far more pronounced than many other Latin American countries, to the point that, as we will see, different parts of the country went to war. It was in 1806 that Dessalines, marching southward with an army to crush the new rebellion, was assassinated. The country was plunged into chaos and became two separate states for some time. The two men that swept to power in this period were, of course, the other two generals that had formed the triumvirate with Dessalines, Christophe and Pétion. While Christophe had believed that he would be next in line to inherit the presidency, Pétion was determined to retain control of the South. And while Christophe did indeed become president, Pétion controlled the Senate, which holds power over the head of state according to the Haitian constitution. Christophe, outraged, actually invaded the South without achieving any concrete results, and so instead simply withdrew to his northern stronghold, and the country was more or less divided along north-south lines by 1812. Now, the two countries that developed at this time were very interesting and actually disproved the commonly held belief that Haiti's revolution was a total failure or just didn't work out. Henry Christophe's northern kingdom was easily the more controversial of the two. He declared himself king of the territory and was renowned for constructing huge monuments across his side of Haiti, including a truly impressive citadel in the mountains. Under his watch, the Haitian military grew exponentially as he anticipated a total war with the South. He was also able to make the Fermage system work remarkably well, and northern Haiti's economy actually thrived for a brief period, reaching between 75 to 80% of its pre-revolution production levels. Additionally, he began an education campaign in a bid to modernise the nation. Christophe was, however, brutal in his treatment of dissent, and many Haitians were soon under the impression that the Northern Kingdom viewed them much as the French had, as slaves. The Southern Republic of Haiti, under Pétion, was a bit different. He was not as flamboyant as Christophe and generally regarded as a fair leader. Pétion saw little use in reinvigorating the Haitian economy, while the Northern half was ready to invade at any moment. And so there was very little export of anything during Pétion's rule. 
What was remarkable about the Republic of Haiti was its program of land redistribution, used to compensate soldiers, officers and even cane cutters for their losses during the revolutionary period. This was possibly one of the first instances of common people owning land in a world dominated by colonialism, serfdom and monarchy. Relying on subsistence farming with these plots of land, most Haitians were completely disconnected from the global economy, for better and for worse. It meant that Haitians in the South, while still incredibly poor, were able to at least scrounge out the basics needed for life. It was worse, though, in that an urban elite of coffee exporters continued to grow in wealth, while the vast majority of disconnected Haitians remained poor. By 1818, Pétion died, and his successor, Jean Boyer, launched an invasion of the North. Many of Christophe's disillusioned subjects did nothing to stop them, and the King of the North, as he was once known, committed suicide. Haiti was once again united. Boyer ruled until 1843. He was deeply unpopular for a number of reasons. He was a very corrupt individual and nepotism was widespread, particularly in the military during his rule. He favoured international European and American companies over Haitian exporters and even arrested prominent black nationalist leaders who threatened his rule. Another far more insidious factor that undermined Haiti during this time was the crippling colonial debt that France demanded Haiti repay. By 1838, this amounted to 90 million francs. In reality, Haiti should not have needed to pay France. Paris had, after all, invaded and brutalised Haiti. Logic and justice didn't matter, however, as the desperate Haiti was forced to indebt itself to prevent its total isolation from from France and the rest of Europe. This French blackmailing is undoubtedly one of the most significant and understated causes of Haiti's economic woes. Boyer also conquered Santo Domingo, successfully uniting the whole island of Hispaniola for a few decades. This caused yet more massive expenditure, and eventually a Dominican nationalist group known as La Trinitaria was able to overthrow Haiti's rule and establish the Dominican Republic in 1844. After another ten years of instability, a former slave, Sir Luke, crowned himself emperor. With wide public appeal, it must be noted. He was devoted to halting the rampant foreign intrusion in Haiti's economy and political affairs, even outlawing Catholicism and introducing voodoo as Haiti's state religion. He invaded the Dominican Republic on numerous occasions, knowing that the regime there was backed by the US, Britain and France, though in 1859 he was deposed by several of his own generals. Haiti sunk into anonymity for several decades after this point, with yet more revolutions and uprisings in the late 1890s and the 1910s in particular, during which time six presidents were deposed or forced into exile. All throughout this awful period, Haitians continued to suffer and grow poorer and poorer, while the country's military elite enriched itself. The next chapter of Haiti's history began rather ominously in 1915, when Haiti found itself dominated by a new colonial and imperial master, the United States of America. Yes, the United States actually invaded and occupied Haiti in this year. But that is a story for next time. And next time will be in three weeks' time. And thanks to Sasha Gillis-Lakakis from the Latin American Update program. But do listen every Sunday at 10.30. It's a wonderful program on 3CR. In the studio with me is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Kate, I'll read what AFIDA, which is the Trade Union Overseas Aid Organisation, CEO Kate Lee wrote after the decision of the ACFID 
which is the Australian Council for International Development, supporting Western Sahara at the end of October. Quote, Today's decision by ACFID members to support the resolution on Western Sahara is a strong signal from Australia's development community that the status quo is not acceptable. The violation of human rights and ongoing illegal occupation by the Moroccan regime must end and a pathway to peace implemented. For too long, the Sahrawi have been denied their legal rights to a referendum on self-determination, which was agreed to 28 years ago, yet is continuously obstructed by Morocco. The Australian government must do all we can to help free Africa's last colony. What did the resolution say, Kate? Well, the resolution was regarded as being a really good one. It has a preamble explaining the basic background. Then they call on members to support the right of the Saharawis to self-determination and independence and stand in solidarity with them. Then it calls on the Australian government to ensure that there's sufficient humanitarian and development assistance going to the Sahrawi refugees. They are, just a parenthesis, I can say, they do suffer greatly, having been on emergency aid for 40 years. Needless to say, they suffer from or donor fatigue. It's always a struggle for them to get the food and other assistance they need. So it would be fantastic if Australia could just make a contribution there. Uh, they ask to uh, the government to support the free and fair referendum to raise human rights abuses during the bilateral meetings with Moroccan authorities and that would be really useful if they would do that and urge them to respect the basic rights of the people of Western Sahara because one of the things they've called for is a the, the, the power of the United Nations Mission, MINURSO, to report on human rights violations, which they don't do at the moment, and they are one of the very few peace missions that doesn't have that capacity. And then they're asking also to declare imports of resources from occupied Western Sahara to be not permitted until decolonisation of the territory is completed. In addition, then, the ACFID Council calls on the UN to proceed with the implementation of the peace plan and the referendum without further delay, to extend the mandate of its mission to include the human rights monitoring, to establish a UN Council for Natural Resources of Western Sahara to legislate for and oversee the development of natural resources in the territory until decolonisation process is achieved. And that would be a real change. I mean, both of the other two would be new mechanisms which would make a material difference to the situation. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about the UN a bit later. Just talk a bit more about that natural resources issue. Issue is a little bit in abeyance as far as Australia goes now because there used to be three fertiliser companies that imported the phosphate from Bukra in Western Sahara. But uh, one by one they gave it up first West Farmers, then Impact Fertilisers in, uh, in Tasmania. Uh, Incitec Pivot, which is based in Melbourne, has not imported at all for the last 
two and a half years or, or more, but they won't say that they're giving it up. They want to keep their commercial options open. So we keep pressing them to just be more decisive about their action and and express the issue of principle, really, that they believe that the country should be decolonised. Is phosphate the only issue with Australia, though, or are there other imports? There's always the potential for other imports. One of the things that the Western Sahara Resource Watch has more recently got on to, we've always realised about the fishing as the other big thing, which mostly doesn't affect us. It's more, more Europeans, Japanese and Russians who are exploiting the, the, the fishing. But we've recently discovered that there's a, a big industry in fish meal. I think this is some of the bycatch gets ground up and sold on. Now, some of it goes to Germany, but just this week there's an article in the Resource Watch, on the Resource Watch website about a huge plant in Turkey that is importing fish meal from Western Sahara. I think some of it may possibly go into animal feed, pet food, I mean, but it's largely used in aquaculture you know, when fish are raised as a uh, farmed as a resource rather than caught in the wild. This is something that Australia engages in. We have a big salmon fisheries and other fisheries around the place. We haven't actually been able to trace yet where they get their uh, feed from for those fishes. But the other thing is that there is a ambassador now, Australian ambassador in Morocco. It's the first time that there's been that level of representation. I'm assured by the Polisario representative in Sydney that he's had discussions with that ambassador who has agreed not to give approval for any commercial activity involving Western Sahara resources or in Western Sahara. I mean, another thing that has happened with that is uh, not exactly like a natural resource, but there is a huge engineering company that has bought another one and it's going to be involved in we're almost sure that it's going to be involved in a plant in western sahara which will process the phosphate up until now the phosphate from western sahara has only been sold in bulk called phosphate rocks they call it although i believe a lot of it comes as powder but it it's um, called rock when it's like that and it just comes in a great big um, container sh- ship. But if they create this new plant in uh, the port of Layun, it may be doing other things like making uh, phosphoric acid or maybe uh, ready-to-go fertilisers. Who knows? Well, you know, that that's, will be a, an, an Australian engineering company building that facility. So it's not exactly importing to Australia, but it's an involvement that we would prefer them not to do. Yeah, They shouldn't engage in working with the Moroccan company OCP, the Office um, office uh, Charifien de Phosphate. Yeah. And that company would be well aware of the political situation vis-à-vis 
Western Sahara? I hope so. I haven't actually personally been involved in writing to them. Hawley Parsons, they're called. But I think it's about time that we started engaging with that company, here. Yeah. You mentioned before the bilateral talks between Australia and Morocco. How often do they happen? I don't know. All diplomatic missions in Canberra have talks all the time with the DFAT representatives for their region. We know that they go quite often because we hear the propaganda coming back to us uh, that they spread around. So they definitely have talks with DFAT, but I have no idea how frequent they are. In the past and even now, has the Australian government done much for the, the refugees in the camps or even the people in the occupied territory of Western Sahara? I can't answer that really. I think there may have been in the past some aid given, not for a long time though, not since I've been involved uh, here in Australia, which is now going back sort of like 15 years. But at the very beginning, there was an Australian contingent that formed the first Minerso team, the first UN mission team. And so that was a contribution that they made, but that was right at the very beginnings of the peacekeeping. And those people, we met one of them not so long ago, who suddenly emerged out of the woodwork, as it were, and they were convinced that they were going to be organising the referendum, would be happening the next month or the one after, or at least next year. And they had no, of course, nobody ever had the idea that it would be lasting so many decades well, we've had the, the good news from ACFID next to the false news and there was a report that the UNICEF goodwill ambassador and former footballer, soccer player David Brecken would be attending a celebration of the 44th anniversary of the Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara. Who pulled that one out? Well, it, it was appearing in the Moroccan press who like to talk about these things. They want to make a big deal about the beginning of the occupation, which they call the Green March. 350,000 Moroccans were corralled into marching from Morocco itself across the border into Western Sahara. They could just get everyone to go, though. I mean, there's a lot of poor people, and they just bust them down from all the all the towns. And I suppose they would be fed and looked after. They, I don't know whether they got paid, but I guess for a lot of people it would be a bit of an adventure to to do that. So it was a very big PR exercise. These people were given a copy of the Koran and a Moroccan flag. And they marched with these two things. That's why it was called the Green March, because it was peaceful. And they could make a big deal out of the idea that it was just a peaceful takeover, if you like. It didn't look green because the Moroccan flag is predominantly red. They were just coming down sort of near the coast, across the border near Tafaya. There's actually a, a, a monument at that border commemorating this event even though the Moroccans now pretend that there's no border that's anathema to them to say that there's a border but anyway around the side to the east 
there was a military invasion happening simultaneously. It was a complete, you know, throwing dust in the air about this military invasion that was taking over, uh, coming to little villages or pastoralists, nom- nomadic pastoralists, and uh, slaughtering all the family, putting them into mass graves. I, again, I've met a Sahrawi guy who was in the Moroccan army because he was from the south of Morocco. He was ordered to kill all the livestock of one of these families. He and his friend agreed not to do it because they couldn't bear to, to do that. And they deserted. And he got caught and, uh, and spent time in prison, I think. But more latterly, one of the, the mass graves that he was in, that same mass grave that he was involved with, he was present there, has been dug up by forensic experts from Spain. And they have identified the people involved. And a whole lot of work has been happening on that. The Moroccans were very anxious that he would give testimony about what he saw on the on that occasion and so this guy who um, we met in 2013 he then got taken back to prison and uh, spent a lot of time he he has been released now but he had to spend some years in prison again because of of that um, of that knowledge that he holds yeah there were families that were totally massacred, yeah. and and but how many people died? I can't nobody knows. say. I, they, somebody probably knows, but I don't have a figure in my head. I'm afraid the, the Spanish made it a a requirement that they said, "Look, you can stage do this stage this stunt, but you have to all go back again." You know, they were pretty supine over most of it, but they did make them go back. As part of the Green March, they had to go back. Nevertheless, once the Spanish had left, the following February, this was, it's like about now that the, the Green March was happening, 6th of November, I think it is. But the following February, the Spanish left, and the next day the Saharawis declared their independent nation, the Saharawi Arab Democratic Republic. But... After that, they started bringing settlers in. Oh, no, perhaps they didn't do that quite so much until until there was... No, it's while the war was on, they perhaps didn't do that so much. But as soon as there was a question of having the referendum, they started bringing settlers in and boosting the population with individuals who they hoped would vote for Morocco. Well, David Beckham didn't go, but one person who did attend was... U.S. President's advisor, Ivanka Trunk, his daughter. I believe she did, but again, that just possibly that that's fake news. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen corroboration of that, but I, I better try and check. But yes, I believe that. Um, you wouldn't be surprised if she did, though. I wouldn't be surprised if she did. Morocco's been clearly doing a very big lobby job in America. They pay millions to public, several public. PR firms to promote their propaganda and their way of thinking. I should think they would, they would do that. So it seems to me that, and probably to other people, I think, that they've been very successful, you have to admit, in their propaganda efforts. 
first of all, they've managed to remove John Bolton as a, a re- advisor to uh, Donald Trump because although he was prosecuting some of the more hawkish ideas of Donald Trump, he was very, very keen. One of the big bug, uh, bees in his bonnet was about the UN and about how they should not be supporting missions that accomplish nothing. Western Sahara was one of the ones that he really wanted to crack that question and get it solved and get it finished. doesn't suit Morocco because they are very frightened that as soon as it's actually put through a proper judicial process of any kind that is sort of within the, uh, what, what do you call it, the rule of law, uh, they will miss out. There's always that risk that they would miss out. And they would much rather just have the status quo, the, 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 the occupation kind of normalised and, and uh, ratified without there being a peace process. They were a bit anxious about what uh, John Bolton was up to, but it did look like it might have given impetus, that they always talking about this impetus to the peace process that Horst Köhler was hoping to impart and get things moving, a new momentum, a new dynamic he was talking about. And he did manage to get a lot done, really, And again, the Moroccans were really nervous about how successful he was in mobilizing the African Union, other African leaders, because he'd done a lot of work in Africa before. He had very good contacts there, and he was getting those people all on board. He was having peace talks in Geneva. There'd been two rounds of these roundtable talks. And although the Moroccans hadn't been very cooperative. It did look as if they were trying to find some areas that could be agreed and talked about. But that was, that was, uh, so they, 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 they stymied, managed to stymie that too. Or at least many people believe that Horst Köhler resigned because he could see he wasn't making headway, wasn't going to get the cooperation he needed in the Security Council. That's like another tick for Morocco. Unfortunately, the um, process... Uh, the, the other thing that they didn't like at all was that uh, in order to keep this momentum going, the mission was being given six monthly mandates instead of 12 months. As soon as I saw that the mandate had gone back to 12 months this time, that there was no proposals made for how the peace process would move forward. There was no appointment for a re- to replace Curler. Nobody's going to follow up on that for t- six or 12 months now. Uh, perhaps, you know, it, it is starting to look very grim for the Sahrawis, I'm afraid. And that um, comes out in the, the heading of a, an article, Big Powers at the UN are hanging Western Sahara out to dry. Exactly, yes. That's an article written by uh, one of the Sahrawi negotiators, the first time they've had a woman on their team, Fatma Mehdi, who was the, the Secretary General of the Women's Union. She's been in that role since 2002. It was really pleasing to see that the Sahrawis wanted to make her part of the negotiating team 
to make a bit of difference. Many people think that um, if you really want peace, you need to get women involved. Well, where do they go now? I should think that they're going to be discussing this very earnestly in the forthcoming Polisario Congress, which will take place in the, well, in Tiferiti probably, uh, I was going to say in the camps, but it's actually, they tend to hold it in the liberated territory, so it's actually held on Western Sahara territory. It's going to be right at the end of the year, just before Christmas. Let's, uh, you know, watch this space and see what, what happens there. They have to discuss what to do, what their plan, what their way forward is going to be, because at the moment it's in stalemate. Yeah. Between a rock and a hard place. Definitely, yes. That's your final word? I'm afraid it's how it seems, but you can always hope. You can always hope, and uh, many hopeless, apparently hopeless situations have been resolved unexpectedly. Uh, apartheid was one of them. It just seemed so entrenched. It just seemed so hard to alter uh, apartheid, to allow Mandela to be released and all that rest. And suddenly things fell into place. He got released. He turned out to be a wonderful statesman and not a horrid terrorist after all. Even the people who had said bad things about him came round. So, yeah, so that was like a good story. It's still a, uh, a work in progress, but making progress, such as the uh, the, the recent um, rugby uh, match they won with a mixed-race team, and it was very exciting. So that was a good story. The other one was the uh, Berlin Wall came down, and again... One mightn't have seen that that was going to happen, but suddenly one day that happened. The same thing really with East Timor. Timorese had been always good friends with Western Sahara and you know, talked a lot about how things were going to go. All of them always thought that Western Sahara would get their referendum and independence before East Timor because they thought it was such a clear case. And... There they are still going, uh, and uh, the, the, the ongoing the, the, uh, stalemate is still ongoing, and and, uh, and Timor, again, a work in progress, but they have got their independence. So when one can just hope that suddenly the, all the stars will align and it'll be the day for Western Sahara. Thanks, Kate. And that, of course, is Kate Lewis from the Australian... Western Sahara Association. 3CR are selling kafia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. It's taken 18 months since the 4th of April 2018 for a trial of seven US Catholic peace activists. The trial lasted three days 
and fellow peace activist and friend Brian Terrell attended each day. Begin Brian with a setting, a court in Brunswick, Georgia. What was the jury verdict on the 24th of October? Well, the verdict came in after more than three days of testimony and the jury took only 90 minutes to have their lunch and elect the foreman and find seven defendants, each individually guilty on each of four counts. So it was tremendously fast, quite disheartening for that in itself. The charges they were found guilty on, what do they carry? Altogether, the maximum would be some 20 years. There's guidelines they go by, and the best guess is that they'll be getting, I believe, like from maybe two to five years in prison. We don't even have the sentencing date yet. It will probably be around the new year or shortly after. Identify the defendants, Brian. Who are they? Seven people who are all good friends and people I've known for for many years, and many of them part of the Catholic Worker Movement. Uh, uh, Carmen Trotta, and uh, he's, oh, in his late 50s, mid-late 50s, uh, he's from the Catholic Worker in New York City. Mark Colville is from the Catholic Worker House in New Haven, Connecticut, and Mark is also in his late 50s, and they're the two two kids in this. Uh, the others, uh, Patrick O'Neill is from the Catholic Worker House in North Carolina, Martha Hennessy is from New York City, the Catholic Workhouse there, and incidentally she is the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker. She's in her 60s, as is Claire Grady, who uh, lives in Ithaca, New York. Elizabeth McAllister has been, uh, well, she's been in jail for most of this time since the action. She's in her late 70s, I believe. And then uh, Steve Kelly is a Jesuit priest who lives in California most of the time. Good friend that I've been involved with in, in protests and other things over over the over the years. Uh, as it happens, they're all uh, very devout Catholics. Their faith was very much a motivation. This was something that the the judge strangely recognized in her decisions. When she, when she denied that they made a motion previously to have the freedom of the restoration of freedom of religious religions act, uh, which is a First Amendment kind of act about law that says that defends people who are acting on their sincere religious beliefs for doing something that would ordinarily be against the law. And it was interesting. She found that they were sincerely religious and that by arresting them, that they, that they were substantially burdened in their exercise of religion. The government had put significant pressure on the defendants not to exercise their religion, that is at King's Bay, and that they were substantially burdened by the actions of the government. But still, uh, and it said, I think the words were that this was a prophetic, symbolic, sacramental denuclearization action. This is the judge herself, but then said that the need for nuclear weapons, for the government to have nuclear weapons, is so overriding, it's so compelling that that, uh, these sincerely religious uh, views were not relevant to the case. 
Surely, Brian, that's a strange thing for a judge to say. Yes. See, this, this trial was kind of unique because usually uh, in jury trials of this case in the United States, they have used uh, the, the Latin legalist word as uh, motion eliminate, which means they can, they can just cross out the whole lines of, of testimony. And very often the fact that uh, even the fact that there might be nuclear weapons at a site are deemed irrelevant and the judge is not, the jury is not supposed to hear it. It's not supposed to be taken into consideration. I think an example is usually if somebody sprays, spray paints a slogan on the sidewalk, if it's a religious or political action, the message is not supposed to be given to the jury. So all the jury is supposed to know is that somebody painted on the sidewalk. In this case, they painted on the sidewalk, but one of the things they painted was, love your enemies. <laughs> but the, the, the prosecution actually had the police witnesses, you know, say these things and to, and to um, you know, read the, 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 the banners they were arrested with that said things like, the logic of trident is omnicide, the, the death of all. So this testimony all got in, but was deemed irrelevant, and not a single one of the jurors was able to um, see through that. Can we talk a little bit more about the actions that they took? They're at a submarine base in Georgia, is that right? Yes. It was on the feast, on, on, on the, the anniversary of the death, 50 years from the death of Martin Luther King Jr., who... Exactly a year before his death, too, he he said that uh, in a speech at Riverside Church in New York, he identified what he called uh, the three triplets of militarism, racism, and and greed and capitalism, in effect, and that these three things are so interrelated. They chose that day, went to the base, and cut a hole in the fence went to three different spaces. Uh, three people went to actually where the uh, missiles are, the Trident missiles, that uh, each of the submarines, six submarines based there, can has capacity to firepower of 3,600 Hiroshima's. And the missiles are stored there, and they pour blood with their own blood on the, on the bunkers that are holding them, and left an indictment and some messages, and another group of the seven went to an office complex uh, where the headquarters are and put up crime scene tape and put blood on, on the sidewalk and, and painted messages on the sidewalk. Interestingly, what they, they, they also brought a copy of Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, The Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner spelling out just what it is we're facing, what a, a nuclear war could do. They left that behind, and it was curious in the trial that they had to be able to, that the government had to accept that book as evidence. And, of course, the jury, who should have been looking at all the evidence carefully, of course, didn't take the time to help, I'm sure. But this was a mistake that the government made, usually they, 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 would, they would exclude something like that, but the government had already, in their case, included even a, um, a used Kleenex and a candy bar wrapper. They, they introduced those as evidence, and so they had to allow this very important book in as evidence. But again, the jury uh, didn't pay any attention, but, but it was 
entered. It's in the record. Uh, and then a third group, two of them went to the uh, the shrine. Friends called it the shrine, and the government kept getting us offended by that and calling it a display. But it really was a very religious uh, <laughs> shrine. There were um, these concrete models of nuclear weapons, of the uh, Trident missiles, the, the ones that are actually in the submarines and uh, cruise missiles and other nuclear weapons are on display for the people who work there to be, I guess, admired or inspired by, or we might say to be worshipped <laughs> by them. And truly, um, you know, from a religious point of view, I, idolatry. They took in a very biblical kind of way. They took hammers and did you know, really minor damage, chipping away at these uh, statues. Again, this is something that the, that the judge recognized as a legitimate religious right, calling it a prophetic, uh, symbolic denuclearization, you know, called it sacramental even. This was their action, and it, yeah, in these uh, very perilous times, you know, it's a, it's a warning. How long were they on the base? Oh, they were on for um, hours and hours, I think like seven hours. Even the people who got to the um, the actual bunkers where these nuclear missiles are. And fortunately, these are nonviolent activists and not somebody else because they were there for hours. And then they rejoined the people who were at the, um, the shrine, at the display, who had seen the military police cars go by like five or six times. And they were just kept waiting and waiting. When are they going to come? There's a myth, and this is something about these kinds of actions, is there is a myth of military security and of nuclear security. Even these places, and this happens over and over again, these places that are supposed to be the most well-guarded places on Earth, the most protected, the most valuable resource, really, that we have, unfortunately, in our twisted society and these nuclear weapons. But... Uh, it's very rarely that somebody who wants to get pretty close access to them can't do it. So these are people with just some, you know, hand tools, mattocks and hammers and bolt cutters were able to, to get into the heart of the whole nuclear establishment without detection, you know, were apprehended only because they were not trying to escape apprehension. Okay, well, they've been apprehended. It took 18 months before it became this trial that we've just had. Where were they in that 18 months? Well, Steve Kelly was in all along ever since then, and he's still being held. He has charges. The United States has two Trident bases, and there's another one the U.K. has in Fastlane, Scotland, which is a big issue now with the whole Brexit and decide what they're going to do with these nuclear weapons. And if Scotland is in, goes independent, but that's that's another question, but it's very related. The other one is in Washington State, Bangor, Washington, and Steve has charges pending there, so he's not been allowed out. The others were, after several weeks, released. They had to post $5,000 bond and wear a ankle bracelet and subjected to curfews and other restrictions. Mark Colville was in and because of medical issues he posted bond and took the ankle bracelet but then he when he was the, took care of the medical issues he went back into the jail 
Liz McAllister, very strangely, she was in until just a few weeks ago, and there was a lot of media attention. She's a very uh, respected, well-known person, a grandmother, and she lives in Baltimore, and the Baltimore Sun had an op-ed piece even talking about what a disgrace. To see, to hold somebody in jail, I'm sure it's the same there, but in the United States, to hold someone before trial, especially on these, with these restrictions about release, they have to determine that somebody is a danger to society and or a flight risk. And, of course, none of these people are a danger to society, and they're not a flight risk because they've wanted to go to trial. They're not trying to evade responsibility for their actions. So it's absurd that they would hold these people, and especially Liz, but she was one day, some weeks ago, just called out of the jail cell and told she was leaving. In her words, they kicked her out because <laughs> she didn't agree to any restrictions that the others had. So anyway, they're all, except for Steve, out on their own recognizance. I believe they have the curfew. I don't think they have the ankle monitors now, but they're, they're awaiting sentencing, which will be you know, sometime in, in the next month. Just talk about, again about what they actually charge with, what the charge that they faced in the court or charges. It's interesting. One is trespass. Another is conspiracy, which is something that they uh, kind of reveled in because, of course, the meaning of conspiracy, it comes from the Latin. It's to breathe with. Conspirators are people who breathe together. They don't think that sounds like a very bad thing. Another is depredation of property. And this is where that word is very interesting because the, the prosecutor, when he was talking to the jury, said that this is depredation, just another word for destruction. That's all it is. And one of the defendants, I think it was Mark Colville, said when he was talking to the jury, the prosecutor was able to give his definition of depredation, where it's supposed to be up to the judge finally, but other people can offer you know, their own versions of it. But the word depredation does not mean simply destruction. It's from the word, it comes from the same roots as predatory. It's destruction of something for your own benefit, or stealing something, or otherwise abusing a person or, or property as a predator, as somebody taking. Mark tried to argue that they weren't being predators. They didn't have anything you know, to gain out of this. They weren't there to take anything or to deprive anyone of anything. And the judge got very angry and <laughs> while allowing the prosecutor to give his incorrect uh, definition of the word, would not let uh, Mark give the true you know, dictionary, the real meaning of the word to, be, to depredate is a very negative connotation. One of the things that the, the judge decided just on, the, the, you know, the, the trial started on 21st on a Monday, and it was only on the 18th that the judge ruled that they could not. Okay, that this is the quote. Uh, the, Although the defendant's subjective beliefs about the illegality of nuclear weapons may be relevant background information, whether nuclear weapons are actually illegal under international or domestic law, a doubtful proposition is not relevant or an appropriate issue to litigate in this case which means that they can say that they believe that nuclear weapons are illegal, but they couldn't, they were prepared to give evidence. They had Professor Boyle, who's one of the leading experts on international law, come and testify 
to this. And they had, for the trial, had given depositions and and things. They, they'd given all the reasons why nuclear weapons are illegal. And Judge Wood said that whether they're actually legal or not, illegal under international law, a doubtful proposition, she said, is not relevant. But, of course, this brings the whole... I think this trial brings up the whole question about what legal means. Uh, there is the whole weight of international laws against nuclear weapons. There's not an argument that having weapons of mass destruction, the possession and use of weapons of mass destruction, is legal. It's, it's you know, it's simply, you know, it is a crime, and that can could have been amply shown in the trial if, if it were allowed. But if law could be imagined to make the destruction of the entire planet, omnicide is the word our, our defendants used, the killing of everything, if that can be legal, but the, the attempt to prevent that from happening is illegal, then what does law mean? Is it any good? Does it serve people? Does it protect? There was a soliloquy between one of the prosecutors was very much a bully, and Claire Grady was on the stand, and she was explaining that she thought nuclear weapons were illegal, but she couldn't say why. And the prosecutor badgered her, saying, oh, so you're saying that your view is the supreme law of the land, you know, painting her as being very arrogant. And she wasn't able to talk about what the supreme law of the land. Those are not neutral words. They have a meaning a very specific meeting in the United States Constitution, the, the Sixth Article Supremacy Clause, that says that all treaties and agreements entered into by the United States and ratified by the United States Senate is the supreme law of the land, whether any act of Congress, regardless, and that every magistrate is required to consider these international agreements. And the Trident Submarine violates all of them. And international law, too, puts an obligation, not a positive obligation upon citizens of any country that's committing crimes against humanity, that, that it's a positive obligation that we are obliged to try to resist and to, to call it out and try to stop it. But uh, she wasn't able to, but that knowledge was not able to be given to the jury. Did they all get a chance to speak? They all had a chance to speak, not... Everyone did. I believe that Steve Kelly was the only person who didn't testify, and I don't second-guess his choice, but I do, I'm, I'm disappointed because I've seen, was able to see all the others and talk to them and hug them, and <laughs> but not to, you know, to hardly hear Steve, Steve's voice. It was very good to see him in the court. He's doing well. He's, the, the jail that, that he's in is pretty awful. He's not been in the sunshine since uh, April a year ago, but I think he's doing well. They were all able to speak, but the judge was able to get it across so clearly to, to the jury that, that nothing that anybody said mattered, that even if everything they said was true, none of it mattered. That was the main thing that got through to the jury. As you say, it makes a mockery of the law, doesn't it? It is a mockery, and I, it's it's an it's, it's an irony in these cases. I think several of the of the defendants would even consider themselves anarchists, but that these are cases where it's the defendants, uh, the people who are accused of breaking the law, who are actually, I think, not only more respectful of the law, 
and have a deeper understanding, but also even more knowledgeable, even about what the law says, because what's operable in U.S. courts is, you know, the law doesn't really matter very much. It's just a, it's according to what the courts exist to maintain a status quo, and if that status quo is criminal, then that's what the courts are working to maintain. And we do have uh, our status quo, our our society here, especially today, is is we're in a uh, kleptocracy, where a government run by uh, our plutocrats and and the, the you know the people with the pot with property. The trial is finally over after 18 months. They could be facing 25 years. Is that correct, or will there be a lot less, lot less sentence than that? Probably be a lot. There are guidelines that the judge is supposed to use. They're, they're working on all that stuff now, depending on each person's criminal record and their age and all these other things get, get, get filtered in. It still is, is possible that we're, I think the best guess would be that some will be getting like a, you know, uh, one to two years and others up to five years. And where are the six now? Have they been able to go home? Yes, all except for, uh, for Steve, who's still sitting in the Glen County Jail. How did you feel after sitting in that court for three days, Brian? Well, a whole mix of things. I felt very tired. You know, I was just there as a spectator. Uh, I felt exhilarated to hear the, you know, the truth being spoken to power. And I think uh, that it's going to be encouraging. I think those people, probably about 100 people, gathered from around the country to be there. And many people are hearing about it other ways, maybe including this radio program, I really do think this is going to have, uh, at a time we really need it, there will be uh, energizing more more protest, more action, radical action to protect this planet that's in jeopardy. And sad, uh, there were finally 12 people on the jury selected out of a panel of 72, and these are all people living in the local district, and Kings Bay is certainly a target for any nuclear power that, talk about Russia, China, particularly if, if, if any place is the first target for a nuclear bomb, it's Kings Bay Naval Station and the people around it, they're, they're in danger of, you know, minute to minute of destruction of everything that, everything around them. And of the 72 people, they were asked, does anybody here have an opinion about nuclear weapons one way or another? And not a single one of them did. I hope, even though they convicted our friends, I hope if they're asked that question now, they would have a different answer. But it's shocking and depressing to me that, that this cross-section of people who live in southern Georgia, lives are on the, on the brink, uh, as all of us are, you know, one way or another, that none of them even had an opinion about it. And it shows how much work we have to do to, to speak and reach out and educate. And that was Brian Terrell, who's a member of Voices for Creative Nonviolence in the US, talking about the trial of the seven plowshare activists. That's all I have for today. I will be back next Tuesday at four. Done by Law will be here in just a moment. But that's it, and I'll just go off with a message from Beyond the Bar. Beyond the Bars. Bye-bye.